1: So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that
0: would justify killing you at that earlier stage.
1: Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast affiliated with Life Training Institute, a podcast that trains you in how to make the pro-life case effectively and persuasively. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and to my left, as I'm looking out at you, to my right, as I'm looking at the screen, Nathan Apodaca is here joining me. How are you doing this morning? Uh, Not too bad. All right, it's good to hear. Yeah, so ordinarily, we have talked about certain arguments regarding abortion from the pro-life or pro-choice crowd, critiquing pro-choice arguments or defending pro-life arguments, talking about how to have discussions, things like that. Today, we're going to do something a little bit differently, and we're going to look at some of the news items that have come to light in the past couple of weeks that pertain to bioethics. Ordinarily, we talk a lot about abortion. That's The topic that Life Training Institute usually focuses on, and that's definitely a very important topic, but bioethics has has implications for a number of spheres. And so, you know, I I think it's uh, important to address those at least once in a while, although uh, bioethics is kind of the, the general overarching topic that I tend to specialize in. But abortion is, of course, just one topic amongst many when it comes to bioethics. And so... The abortion issue has implications for this first topic that I wanted to discuss. And I'm going to go ahead and share the screen so that I can show the articles that I'm going to be looking at here. All right. So, the first topic for discussion, and I brought this up from lifenews.com, which is, of course, a, a pro life news site. But the person who wrote the article is Wesley Smith, and he's, you know, well known in the. Uh, Realm of bioethics. He has a blog called Human Exceptionalism. And he actually quotes the article from the Wall Street Journal. But uh, I I didn't necessarily want to talk about the whole story. So that's why I just brought up the the life news story here, is because there's one specific aspect of it that pertains to the pro life position. And so Wesley Smith here writes uh, about Pfizer and the news that they have actually discovered a vaccine for coronavirus that they've discovered to be 90% effective. So Wesley Smith here writes, the news that Pfizer's vaccine is 90% effective has rocked the world. The company will be applying for an emergency FDA approval. And so here, this is from the Wall Street Journal story. A vaccine developed by Pfizer Incorporated, PFE 0.03% and partner BioNTech SE proved better than expected at protecting people from COVID-19 in a pivotal study, a milestone in the hunt for shots that can stop the global pandemic. The vaccine proved to be more than 90% effective in the first 94 subjects who were infected by the new coronavirus and developed at least one symptom, the company said Monday. The positive, though incomplete, results bring the vaccine a big step closer to getting cleared for widespread use. Pfizer said it is on track to ask health regulators for permission to sell the shot before the end of this month if pending data indicate the vaccine is safe. The timetable suggests the vaccine could go into distribution this month or next, though U.S. health regulators have indicated they will take some time to conduct their review. So that's kind of the background of this story, that Pfizer has developed this coronavirus vaccine, which, of course, leads a lot of pro-life people to ask about the morality of such a vaccine, because as we've discovered, there are some vaccines that actually use, use cells that came from fetuses who were aborted. And so, of course, that that leads pro-life people to wonder, well, if they use fetal cells in a vaccine, are there going to be fetal cells in this coronavirus vaccine? And if there are, does that mean that pro-life people are obligated not to take the vaccine? Well, the the good news here is that there actually are no fetal cells being used in these vaccines. Uh, Wesley Smith here continues in his article, that's great news, but many pro-lifers have resisted taking any COVID vaccine if if fetal cells taken from aborted fetuses were used in its development. So I checked. Pfizer's vaccine was developed using genetic sequencing on computers without using fetal cells. As a consequence, the pro-life Charlotte Lozier Institute listed the vaccine as, quote, ethically uncontroversial, end quote. That news may materially increase the number of people willing to be inoculated when the vaccine becomes generally available, perhaps avoiding a potentially explosive controversy over mandates that has been brewing in recent months. So the good news here is that this new coronavirus vaccine being developed by Pfizer does not use fetal cells. So you can feel free to take that vaccine when it becomes commercially available.
0: And also, I would direct people to the Charlotte Lozier article because it is far even more in-depth than Wesley Smith's article. It goes deeper. It has infographics on how the vaccines are developed and where cell lines are drawn for these vaccines. It's actually, it's a very helpful article for anybody who's interested.
1: Is it this article that pops up here, an ethics assessment of COVID-19 vaccine programs? There is that one. There's also another article
0: by David Prentice, uh, which was published originally on September 30th, but they've done some updates on it. Um, and it's got a lot more charts and data for anybody who wants to look closer at that.
1: If you can send that to me later, I'll post that article in the show notes so that people can look, look this up for further information. Right. Yeah, and uh, and the articles here that I that I'm alluding to have also been posted in the show notes as well. So uh, for those of you watching the the live video, you can see that already where it says show more, and it has all that information listed. I already put these articles there. So you can look these up for more information to do more research later. And especially when it comes to the the method of this new vaccine. It's worth noting that neither Nathan nor I are scientists. We're not biologists. We're more like philosophy popularizers. We look at the arguments, we disseminate them, and help you be able to make the case more effectively. Uh, so one thing to point out here is that the vaccine that they that Pfizer developed to combat coronavirus actually has a different mechanism than the one that we that we are used to understanding most vaccines what they actually do is they actually inject you with a diminished form of the disease and that allows your body to build up an immunity to it so that you will be able to to fight it off when you know when that disease comes uh, comes upon you you'll have a better chance of being able to fight that off because your body has already been able to build up the immunity to it with this with a safer amount of the disease before it actually tries to attack you But this vaccine is actually different. It uses mRNA, which, of course, stands for messenger RNA, and RNA is a a ribonucleic acid. It uses RNA vaccine technology, uh, which is slightly different than the uh, vaccines that we're usually used to uh, to receiving. And now I actually wanted to talk about what RNA is because I have a book by, and Nathan has the same book, I believe, by um, Maureen and Samuel Kondik in which they actually describe what RNA is. But the description of RNA actually uses a lot of technical language. So I didn't feel it would necessarily be very helpful to actually use their definition for what RNA is. Instead, I'm going to just post a link here to this article, which actually talks about RNA and what the RNA vaccine actually is. So those of you who want more information on this can actually do some more research to understand what the RNA vaccine actually does. So I'm just going to read one paragraph here real quick, which talks about it. And then you can find this article here, which you could read the entirety of at your leisure to understand it better. This paragraph here says, for a classical vaccine, the antigen is introduced in the body to produce an immune response. However, in the case of DNA or RNA-based vaccines, no antigen is introduced, only the RNA or DNA containing the genetic information to produce the antigen. That is, for this specific class of vaccines, introduction of DNA and RNA provides the instructions to the body to produce the antigen itself. And that's in figure one, which is right here on the screen. It says they can be injected in various ways under the skin, in the vein, or in lymph nodes, and then they can enter our body cells. Those cells will use the RNA sequence of the antigen to synthesize the protein. Uh, after this step, the mechanism is similar to classical vaccines. The antigen is presented at the surface of a subset of cells and triggers the activation of specific cells of the immune system. And so here in figure one, we see RNA vaccine technology. And RNA is injected in the body, which is at left, And then this RNA encodes the information to produce the antigen, which is a protein from a pathogen that will stimulate the immune system. Inside the cells, the RNA is used to synthesize the antigen, which is exposed to the cell surface in the middle. Then a subset of immune system cells recognizes the antigen and trigger an immune response, direct response and long-term memory, which is at the right. So again, uh, we're not uh, doctors or scientists, so I'll leave this page up here for you to peruse at your leisure. But if I'm reading and understanding this correctly, it seems like one of the primary differences between the regular vaccines we usually get, like when you get your flu shot, and an RNA based vaccine technology like the coronavirus vaccine is that in the regular vaccine that you get, they actually introduce the uh, the disease into your body uh, in, in a diminished safe amount so that your body can build up uh, an immune response to it. But for the RNA vaccine, they, they don't introduce the actual pathogen itself. They actually basically train your body through the use of RNA and mRNA in order to be able to build up the immunity. So this actually means that while there, there are still po- the possibility of side effects like you get from any vaccine, it actually, I believe it's actually a safer way to get a vaccine than actually having the, the pathogen itself introduced into your body. Yeah, so that, that's how I read and understand it. You know, if there are doctors or scientists that come up across this out there, you can of course uh, let us know if if uh, you know we could be a bit more accurate with that. And so, like I said, you know, I'm not going to try and talk about what RNA is because it's it's pretty technical, and there were some terms in there which we'd have to talk about, and that would lead to a lengthier program. So I'm just going to leave this here for anyone to peruse uh, at their leisure later. And it's also that will this will be good news
0: to a lot of for life people who have been concerned about the possibility of fetal cells being used in vaccines. I remember, actually, we went to the March for Life this past year. There were groups that were out there sharing information about that and weren't exactly the friendliest uh, about it. But it is an area of concern for a lot of pro life people over the past year is, hey, you know, should I be taking this vaccine? Now that we have the information on it, it's yeah, it doesn't really lead to any moral problems for pro-lifers.
1: Yeah. So regardless of where you fall on the on the topic of vaccines and whether or not they use fetal cells, in, in this case with the coronavirus vaccine, you don't even have to worry about it because they, they're yeah. not using fetal cells. Even if you feel like you don't want to use any vaccines that use fetal cells, this will be a, an uncontroversial way to uh, to get a vaccine. So that's, that's good news for pro-life people. Moving to our second topic is... Of course, we've had the election going on and President Trump is still in the battle, but it's looking more like Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. And so, you know, we're not going to talk about the election here. If you voted Trump or you voted Biden, you're welcome here. We hope this information is useful to you. But one of the controversial things that have sprung up is that Uh, And this comes from an article, A Doctor and Medical Ethicist Argues Life After 75 is Not Worth Living, written by Stephen S. Hall. The controversy here is that Joe Biden is wanting to put Ezekiel Emanuel who is a bioethicist who believes that life after 75 is not worth living. He wants him on his coronavirus task force. And this, of course, has led to controversy because Dr. Emanuel believes that life after 75 is not worth living. Here's this article that I've posted in the show notes, which you can read later. Emanuel wrote an article called Why I Hope to Die at 75, in which he outlines his position a lot more clearly. I didn't have a chance to read the full article, but I read a big portion of it. I read the entire MIT article here, but haven't had a chance to read the entire article from The Atlantic, but but I did read a a good portion of it. And so Dr. Emanuel is not promoting euthanasia. In fact, he states that he actually opposed the legalization of euthanasia and assisted suicide. So while he says that life after 75 is not worth living, what he means is that he doesn't think that you know, you should be euthanized for being over 75. But what it does mean is he does not believe that you should use medical technology to extend your life if you're over 75. And this needs to be with a caveat too, because in his Atlantic article, he wrote near the end here that if someone wants to extend their lives, he doesn't oppose that. He has shown people how to get medical care if they're over 75. But these last couple paragraphs here shows that he believes that, and he's speaking for himself here. In fact, I'll just go ahead and read these couple, couple of paragraphs here. So when he's talking about actual medical policy here, he says, this means, I quote, this means colonoscopies and other cancer screening tests are out and before 75. If I were diagnosed with cancer now at 57, I would probably be treated unless the prognosis was very poor, but 65 will be my last colonoscopy. No screening for prostate cancer at any age. When a urologist gave me a PSA test, even after I said I wasn't interested and called me with the results, I hung up before he could tell me. He ordered the test for himself, I told him, not for me. After 75, if I develop cancer, I will refuse treatment. Similarly, no cardiac stress test, no pacemaker, and certainly no implantable defibrillator. No heart valve replacement or bypass surgery. If I develop emphysema, or some similar disease that involves frequent exacerbations that would normally land me in the hospital, I will accept treatment to ameliorate the discomfort caused by the feeling of suffocation, but will refuse to be hauled off. What about simple stuff? Flu shots are out. Certainly, if there were to be a flu pandemic, a younger person who has yet to live a complete life ought to get the vaccine or any antiviral drugs. A big challenge to antibiotics for pneumonia or skin and in urinary infections. Antibiotics are cheap and largely effective in curing infections. It is really hard for us to say no. Indeed, even people who are sure they don't want life extending treatments find it hard to refuse antibiotics. But, as Osler reminds us, unlike the decays associated with chronic conditions, Death from these infections is quick and relatively painless, so no to antibiotics. End quote. So here we see that talking for himself, he doesn't believe in any life extending treatments, but he doesn't seem to oppose it if somebody else wants to get it. So it's really up in the air that Joe Biden wants to put someone on his coronavirus task force who believes life after 75 is not worth living but he doesn't believe in euthanasia or assisted suicide for people after 75. And he seems to be okay with other people getting treatment, even if he doesn't want treatment. But this still raises some red flags. If he is on this coronavirus task force, what kind of policies will he be pushing for? Will he refuse to allow people after 75 to get treatment in favor of uh, younger people getting treatment? What kinds of things will will he be pushing for is really what's on people's minds and is really what's kind of giving people pause about Dr. Emanuel here being put on the coronavirus task force.
0: That should actually raise a lot of red flags. If there's a lot we can actually I would say that we can agree with here is that we don't have an ethical obligation to sustain life at all costs. That natural death is something that we're all going to face one day. At least in my opinion, I would think that he's hitting on something that I would agree with is that hey, yeah, if I have a chronic illness, I'm not going to try and extend my life at all at all costs, because eventually I am going to die someday. And honestly, as a Christian, I know that death is not the end, that it's only the beginning of right. life of right. Christ. If somebody disagrees, that's totally fine. But that should raise some red flags there is if there's a bit of a utilitarian, at least from what I'm hearing, is there is a bit of a utilitarian view of human life is that, well, you know, life is really not worth living after 75. Well, what does he mean by worth? That's what I would like to know is, you know, we have people out who are beyond the age of 75 who have contributed a lot. Two names that come to mind would be Betty White and Stan Lee, two very famous Well, Betty White is an actress and then Stan Lee is a writer and also as an actor. They both contributed greatly even after age of 75. So I don't think that we should accept the conclusion that, oh, after 75, your life isn't going to have any meaning. I mean, some elderly people have contributed a lot to other people's lives. It seems to me that there's a very utilitarian view of life here that I think we could call into question and say, you know, oh yeah, I might not be contributing much after 75. Well, why is that why my life has meaning in the first place based on how much I can contribute to other people? And then also just this idea that, oh, well, after age 75, we may not want to focus so much effort on helping people who get coronavirus at that age. I would also question that. I would just say it's like, why is that the case? I mean, somebody might still value their life after age 75.
1: He does talk about why uh, life after 75 is not worth living. This is from his Atlantic article here. Where he says, Doubtless death is a loss. It deprives us of experiences and milestones, of time spent with our spouse and children. In short, it deprives us of all the things we value. But here is a simple truth that many of us seem to resist. Living too long is also a loss. It renders many of us, if not disabled, then faltering and declining, a state that may not be worse than death, but is nonetheless deprived. It robs us of our creativity and ability to contribute to work, society, the world. It transforms how people experience us, relate to us, and, most important, remember us. we are no longer m- remembered as vibrant and engaged, but as feeble, ineffectual, even pathetic. So it sounds like he's like he's concerned about the the decay that all of us have to, uh, well, will one day have to go through when we reach an old enough life and that, you know, our faculties are going to start failing us. Our ability to, to reason is going to start failing us and our ability really to care for ourselves is going to start failing us as well. So we as Christians believe that life is inherently valuable and that human beings are valuable just because they're human and the religious response, we're made in God's image, the non-religious response that we have a rational nature that uh, inheres in us and keeps us the same, Through all of our lives, through all of our changes, it's not an idea that is shared by Doctor Emmanuel here. So there's also just kind of a different view of of what what makes life valuable. And this is something that we you know we we can go back throughout time and see is that even in the ancient Greeks they they would view old age as something to be respected, and that the reason that we have kids is so that our children just like we take care of them when they're children and unable to take care of themselves, our children grow up to be able to take care of us when we're too old to be able to take care of ourselves. And this is an idea that that Christians can relate to as well is that, you know, we have children because yeah, one day they'll be able to help take care of us when we're too old to take care of ourselves. But it goes more than that in that we view human life as inherently valuable and we view people as inherently valuable. So we don't just have kids to have someone to take care of us when we get old, although that is one thing that kids can do for us. But we also have kids because the more people that exist, the better. God loves people and, you know, God wants us to be fruitful and multiply, that kind of thing. So there's that kind of thing as well. It's just a a disagreement with Ezekiel Emanuel about what makes life valuable. He he thinks if we, you know, if we can't contribute meaningfully to society or to each other, uh, we no longer have a life that has value. And of course we would say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because we're, we're valuable based on the kind of thing that we are, not the kinds of things that we can contribute to others or to society. We view old age as something that is to be respected because people not only have they attained wisdom that comes through living life, but also we respect people. Uh, you know, you don't have to die to be respected about the th- for the things that you've done in your life. And so even if you're mentally and physically declining you know, we still respect you for the for the contributions that you've made in the past. In fact, that makes us more likely to want to care for you if you've made some kind of contribution uh, rather than if you've squandered your life. Something
0: that comes to mind, Chris Kaser points out in his book, A Defense of Dignity, is that we need to differentiate between two types of dignity that people usually talk about. He talks about uh, attributed dignity and intrinsic dignity. And he talks about a third type, which would be dignity is flourishing. But what, is touched on in the article here is would be called attributed dignity it's oh you know maybe i grow up i become an inventor or I become a very famous writer and i, I contribute a lot to other people's lives well after age 75 theoretically i develop a chronic illness and i no longer can do those things yeah i might lose my attributed dignity but as chris Kazer points out i still have my intrinsic dignity based on what i am as a human being something else when he said that he goes you know we're no longer going to be remembered as vibrant young and and contributing to other people's lives but as feeble and kind of helpless that doesn't say much about a person of that age it says more about the culture and the way the culture perceives them i think about i mean cultures have differed in how they have viewed the elderly um some cultures actually hold the elderly in a very high uh standard or on a very high pedestal saying that hey you know we can learn a lot from these people from the wisdom they have gained and what they can teach us and what they've done in the past. So saying that, you know, we view the somebody at that age at age 75 or age 85 as somebody who's feeble, feeble, or any of the other things he mentioned, that's more of a reflection of our view of them. And it's not really a reflection of them themselves and what they have to offer. Still, it it says more about the mindset that we have. And our mindset can change based on the facts and it should change based on the facts. Frankly, I think it's a good argument for being more open-minded about it and saying, hey, when I'm 85 years old, I won't be able to do what I can do right now as 25 years old. But what does that have to do with anything? I might be able to do other things. I might be able to do much more at that age than I would ever imagine myself doing right now while I'm 25. So I think it's just more of an argument to be more open-minded and say, hey, yeah, they can't do what they used to do, but so what? I mean, what does that matter in the first place? That's not why their life has meaning.
1: Yeah. And I, I just watched a panel with some conservative intellectuals and O. Carter Sneed was one of the folks on the panel and he actually made a, a good observation. He said, you know, he wonders if if uh, Dr. Ezekiel uh, Emanuel knows that Joe Biden is 78 and if he's president of the United States, if he would allow President Biden to, to even receive the vaccine because he's over 75. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I actually was not familiar with Ezekiel Emanuel's work before being made aware of that article. And I, I checked with some colleagues also, and they hadn't really heard of him. One person had heard of him. Callum Miller, I think, was one who said this. And in the New England Journal of Medicine, Ezekiel Emanuel wrote an article called Physicians Not Conscripts, Conscientious Objection in Healthcare, in which Emanuel argues that professional societies should declare conscientious objection unethical. So he actually holds um, holds a bad view of conscientious objection also, which if you're not familiar with the concept of conscientious objection in healthcare, is just basically the position that if a doctor has moral problems with things like abortion and euthanasia, that they should not be forced to perform those procedures if they have ethical objections to it. So it's you know, similar to conscientious objection in the military. The conscientious objection in healthcare is just that whether or not doctors ought to be forced to perform procedures that they have ethical objections to, like abortion and euthanasia. And so Ezekiel Emanuel joins the ranks of those like uh, Julian Savulescu and Udo Shuglink, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing. But uh, those two philosophers, uh, as well as Ezekiel Emanuel, do not believe that doctors ought to be able to conscientiously object to procedures that they are ethically opposed to. And so that's really a discussion for for another time. But uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is one of those who does not believe that doctors ought to be able to conscientiously object a third topic that we have for discussion here and this is one that I'm reading from national review uh which of course is a is a news site that leans more conservative but this is another one that was written by Wesley Smith and this one is about how the Polish high court outlaws abortion for fetal disability so we're kind of running the gamut of bioethics here on this program first we have uh, abortion and uh fetal cells in in vaccines. And then we move to uh, whether, you know, whether or not life is worth living after 75 and conscientious objection. And now we're talking about abortion for fetal disability. And we're going to talk about eugenics here uh, in a moment. So this program really kind of runs the gamut of (laughs) of bioethic concerns here. Okay. So the the article here from, from Wesley Smith says, Poland has traditionally outlawed most abortions, except for those obtained due to fetal abnormality or to save the life or health of the mother. Now the constitutional tribunal Poland's highest court has ruled that abortion obtained because of fetal disability is un- is unconstitutional. From the New York Times story, in the ruling, the tribunal's president Julia. Przelebska said that allowing abortions in cases of fetal abnormality legalized, quote, eugenic practices with regard to an unborn child, thus denying it the respect and protection of human dignity, end quote. Because the Polish constitution guarantees a right to life, she added, terminating a pregnancy based on the health of the fetus amounted to, quote, a directly forbidden form of discrimination, end quote. So that was from the New York Times. And so Wesley Smith continues in his article, In other words, the court treated the unborn child as a human being deserving of the same equal rights as people who are born. Fetal abnormality was the reason for most of Poland's 1,110 legal abortions in 2019, so this ruling could save the lives of children diagnosed with Down syndrome, dwarfism, and other genetic conditions. Most non-Polish news stories about the case focused on the quote, angry, end quote, protests that erupted in the decision's wake, with some critics of the decision worrying that more women will have to leave Poland for an abortion, which more than 100,000 already do each year. The only way the case could be overturned would be to amend the Polish constitution, which requires a two-thirds majority vote of the people. Poland is a pro-life country, one of the few in the West, so that isn't likely, at least in the near term. That's the end of, of Wesley Smith's article there. So just to briefly recap the Polish high court has outlawed abortion because their constitution guarantees a right to life and uh allowing abortion for the case of, of fetal abnormality is discriminatory against fetuses with health issues like uh, Down syndrome, dwarfism, things like that. Because this was an unjust form of discrimination, the Polish High Court has outlawed it, which of course has led to protests from pro-choice organizations who are upset that more women are going to have to leave Poland to have abortions.
0: I think we need to make an observation about the protests because Poland still allows abortions in the case of when the mother's life is in danger or for rape or incest. The mass protests with hundreds of thousands of people taking to the street to protest. I think it kind of shows what a sham some typical pro-choice arguments are. For example, we always, from hardcore activists, we always get the question, it's like, oh, well, what about in the case of rape? Or what about in the case of life of the mother? Well, in Poland, they are still allowing that, and pro-choice organizations are still fighting tooth and nail. So at least in some cases, it's true that it's just a smoke screen. It's just a way to say, hey, you know, let's make, the pro-lifer look as bad as possible. And it's saying, well, politically, we're still allowing these, but people are still protesting about it. So it was never really about those hard cases to begin with. It was more about, I have a right to have an abortion if, uh, for whatever reason I deem necessary. And, and that's why I think we're seeing a lot of these protests is because people are more upset about losing the right to abortion rather than about the circumstances uh, surrounding abortion in the first place.
1: Yeah. One question that came up in my mind as I was reading that is, You know, what what exactly took them so long? You know, if this is if this is unjust discrimination to abort fetuses with deformities, then why are they just now outlawing it? Now I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm saying I'm just saying it's about time. You know, if if you're gonna argue that you should abort a fetus because it has Down syndrome or because it has dwarfism or something like that. Well, it's kind of inexplicable as to as to why we shouldn't just kill people who are alive today that have these issues. Because right. if, if you deem these issues not worth living such that you're willing to kill someone who has these issues, well, that would be inconsistent. I would say that serves as a hard case for pro-choice people as to if you believe we should kill fetuses that have these issues, then why should we not? kill people who are outside the womb who also have these issues.
0: So Right. I really have to ask what kind of message does that send to the rest of the world and especially people who are disabled around the world and saying that your life is not worth living because you have a disability, but I don't have a disability and I'm going to tell you your life is not worth living. What kind of message does that send? Like, right. I mean, do people stop and think about this and say, it's like, Hey, yeah, maybe I'm being a jerk about this and saying that, Yeah, I don't know what it's like to have that disability. So I should probably be a little more careful with what I'm saying about that. I also have to laugh. I saw some comments about this online and people were saying that, oh, we're going to stand up to this government here. Uh, The Polish women have now been mobilized. And my thought came to mind was Poland was occupied by both the Soviets during the Cold War and Nazi Germany during World War II. But this is what it took to get people out into the streets to fight. Really? Like, come on. I mean, you can't have an abortion, so that's making you much more angry than Soviet oppression or Nazi oppression. Come on, really? Yeah, yeah. So,
1: so we, you know, we would consider that good news out of Poland, and it's not very specific on what kinds of health issues would justify abortion. You know, the article said that a hundred thousand Polish women leave Poland every year to go have an abortion, but you know, here in the United States, our health uh, exception was defined so broadly in the Dovey Bolton case that there's generally no reason that a woman cannot have an abortion at, at any point uh, through all nine months. If she can convince her doctor that it's for, the, for her health, whether it be financial health, familial health, emotional or mental health, etc. cetera, uh, she can have an abortion if she can convince the doctor. And some late-term abortionists, like Warren Hearn, who practices in Boulder, Colorado, believes that if a woman doesn't want a pregnancy, that's a health concern. So he'll do right. an abortion on anyone. Essentially. And Um, there
0: is a myth that abortions after viability only happen for health cases. And it's interesting when you look at the actual medical literature on this. So I have a book on my shelf right now, Abortion Care by Samuel Rollins. He's a British abortionist, and it's a, a medical textbook on how to perform abortions. And he actually makes the point in the book on page 144 he says if you don't use feticide like potassium chloride or digoxin to make sure the fetus is killed, in a case where there is no fetal abnormality, you run the risk of having a child born alive if the abortion takes place after viability. And then he goes on to say that, you know, if the child is born alive, get them to a hospital as quick as you can and get them the best medical care that you can. So this whole idea that abortions after viability or even that late in pregnancy are only for cases where there's severe health problems, it's a complete myth. And people aren't even aware of the literature on that issue.
1: And so the last um, last story that I wanted to touch on here, so this is an article from the Los Angeles times for those of you who are not local, Los Angeles. Well, you've probably heard of Los Angeles, but Los Angeles times yeah. is, is a newspaper in LA. And so the article is called UC Berkeley is disavowing its eugenic research fund after Bioethicist and other faculty call it out. This is written by Teresa Watanabe, a bioethics professor at UC Berkeley, Osagi K. Obasogi. And again, I may be, Uh, I may be butchering that name, but he uh, received a campus email about a research fund available. I'll just kind of uh, summarize everything here. But he received a campus email about a research fund available to faculty members of UC Berkeley. And UC Berkeley is a a somewhat well-known college here in California. It's up in the Bay Area, if I'm not mistaken. But essentially, the Genealogical Eugenic Institute Fund supports research and education in eugenics, which was a field discredited after World War II as a horrifying ideology that sought to use science to improve the human race by promoting traits deemed superior and breeding out those judged undesirable. The judgments aligned strongly with social biases that favored white, able-bodied, and financially stable people." And so it was a justification for Hitler's Nazi Germany to kill 6 million Jewish people and the U.S. authorities to forcibly sterilize more than 60,000 people in California and more than 30 other states, largely in the early 20th century. So obviously this is not something that a college, especially a progressive college, would want to be associated with. And yet Berkeley's Eugenic Research Fund has been active. It's a $2.4 million fund. That offers an annual payout of about $70,000 in fiscal year 20, or it did in fiscal year 2020, to support research and education on policies, practices, and technologies that could, quote, affect the distribution of traits in the human race, end quote, including those related to family planning, infertility, assisted reproduction technologies, prenatal screening, abortion, gene editing, and gene modification, the email said that, quote, modern definition of eugenics, end quote, included, quote, perspectives that shed light on not only the benefits, but also the limitations and the ethics of these alternative approaches to improving the human race, end quote. And so the article goes on to talk about how Obasogi was shocked and dismayed that this thing is still going on. So obviously, this is not not something that the college is going to want to be associated with. I don't think the article actually says what they're going to do with the fund now that this has kind of come to light. But there are certain people who are talking about how it's wrong to continue accepting the money based on the history behind what the fund is for. And now, as I got about halfway down the article, I was starting to think, well, you know, I I wasn't sure about their claim that eugenics has been largely discredited after World War II because eugenics still goes on today, just in a different form. Uh, For example, with in vitro fertilization, when you conceive embryos artificially in the womb, you're performing eugenics on those embryos because you have to look at their, at their genetics to see which ones have the greatest chance of survival. And then you implant them into the woman's womb. And as we learn more and more about what kinds of genetic markers to look for, we can, we can start selecting out embryos that have favorable traits and that have less favorable traits. We can get rid of those and only implant the ones that have traits that we've, uh, that are more acceptable to us. And I I was starting to think of that as I was reading through this article. But to my surprise, you know, it was a happy surprise, essentially, was that this article in the Los Angeles Times actually talks about those kinds of eugenics that are still going on. Uh, Although apparently some people call them new genics, not eugenics. But right. you know, I hadn't heard that term before, but it's still something that goes on even today that we have cases of eugenics going on. They're not as known, and a lot of people don't have a great issue with them because they're going on with human embryos. But it's the same kind of thing that went on in, in Nazi Germany, where they talked about how Jews were, were not persons, and so they could justify doing all sorts of experiments on them. And today, we don't consider embryos to be persons, and so we're able to do all sorts of experiments on them through in vitro fertilization. And other things. So eugenics is still going on. It just takes a different form. But UC Berkeley has basically said that, you know, it's not good for us to continue to take funds that that has such a history of eugenics behind it.
0: Now correct me if I'm wrong, but I still remember when I read the article, it said that this fund had been around for decades. I believe so. I really uh, have to wonder who at UC Berkeley was looking past this and saying, hey, you know, yeah, there's no problem with it. And It's pretty sad that a school as prestigious as UC Berkeley would allow, just allow that to slip by and say, hey, and nobody asked a question until now saying, hey, something's up with this. Why do we have this eugenics fund when we know what eugenics is? I have to wonder how many people actually do know what eugenics was. I mean, and it goes way back to the 19th century with uh, quote unquote scientific racism and racial theories of crime and offending where scientists like Cesar Lombroso in the United States had said, hey, you know, there are genetic defects in different people and different races that lead to social pathologies like crime, like poverty, and like a lack of education. And that's what created a lot of the biases in the sciences that led to eugenics and helped create uh, the eugenics movement in the United States that Margaret Sanger and some of the early founders of Planned Parenthood were associated with. And actually a lot of very prominent uh, scholars at the time in the early 20th century were affiliated with the eugenics movement. People like H.G. Wells, if I'm not mistaken, he was also affiliated with it, science fiction writer and British scholar. I think it's very easy because given that the fun was crouched in very academic sounding language, that as we, when we, uh, Hendrik uh, Vanderbregen points out in his book, he goes, you know, with a euphemism, you can hide the truth just by using a very calm sounding word. And I think that's what happened here was. The fund was going around saying, "Oh yeah, this is what it's all for for family planning and for research." It's like, "Yeah, what kind of research are we talking about here? Are we talking about ethical research because it doesn't sound like it." And I'm glad that the bioethicist he he spoke up and he caught that and was able to call it out.
1: Those are the the issues from the past couple of weeks that really stuck out to us. And now, if you've uh, if you listen to this uh, video, you'll have a better idea of these issues and a better understanding of of uh, why some of these. Turned out to be controversial. If you found this uh, discussion helpful, then feel free to sh- share us around social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, wherever. And if you uh, if you are able to to help become a financial supporter. Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says that there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are working full-time to save them. If you have the means and uh, you would like to become a financial supporter of the podcast, you can go to prolifetraining.com and click on Donate on the menu on the top. You can uh, send a donation there. Make sure to put my name in the notes section so Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account and uh, donations are also tax deductible. With that... We uh, hope you have a great rest of the day and we'll see you next time.